0: That's the 25th Psalm. And again, one final time, we'll read the entirety of it this evening. So, hear now once again the word of our God. A Psalm of David. Unto Thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in Thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on Thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me, for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn, thou un, turn thee unto me, and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged, O bring thou me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my pain, and forgive all my sins. Consider mine enemies, for they are many, and they that hate me with cruel hatred. O keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's the reading of God's word. And may he richly bless it to us this evening. A minister from the eastern part of the world found himself in America. And as a number of American ministers were discussing as they are wont to do the state of the church in the west, it became very apparent that this man from the east was silent. And so one of the ministers, the American ministers, turned to him and asked a very basic question. What is your assessment of the church in the West? What is your assessment of the biggest difficulty, the greatest problem the church faces here? The man turned to him and said just this. He said, your Christianity is miles wide, but inches deep. Your religion, your Christianity is miles wide, but inches deep. You see, friend, he was getting at a very basic point, wasn't he? That in the West we have so many privileges, and the reality is so many know so much of the scriptures, at least in comparison to generations even before the Reformation. We live in a privileged place. But his assessment, this Eastern minister... It's cutting, isn't it? We know so much, have access to so much, and yet we are but inches in depth. Inches in depth with regard to our experience of the truths that we know. Inches in depth when it comes to what it is defined in the scriptures as walking with God according to the power of godliness. Inches. You see, friend, as we come to this psalm, it's important for us to remember that we come to a man whose piety was not miles wide only. He was a man who walked closely with the Lord. There was a depth to his walk. But before we actually come to our text, I'd just make a further statement. After hearing that man's assessment of the things that really face the church in the West today, It struck me that often you'll have folks say much about their desire to know about God. And so we're elated, aren't we, when we hear the seminarian saying, or the student going into a theological college saying, I desire to know more about God. And certainly I was elated whenever I would hear the the drug and alcohol addict coming to me saying, I long to know more about God. You see, friend, I've never... Really encountered with any great regularity. Somebody saying. I want to know God. Not I want to know about God. Or about the things of God. But I want to know God. Himself. I want that kind of depth. That we are so clearly lacking here. So friend I'm not terribly impressed anymore. When somebody comes up to me telling me that they want to know more about God. We need death. As we look at Psalm 25 this evening, that's precisely what we find. We find depth because in part, as we've said before, this is a primer on basic piety. This is, a, this is really a, a, an acrostic that's coming to us to, to instruct us on the fundamentals of life with God. And it's striking, isn't it? That as this psalm comes to it, it, it comes to us through the crucible of affliction. The fundamentals, in other words, that the psalmist brings to our attention here, he does so only as they've been fired in the furnace. And so, friend, as we look at this text, and as we have been for some time, we're looking at a man who is melted. Melted in the sense that all of the furnishings, all of the trappings have been melted away, and all that is left is the real metal of the soul. And so, friend, it's fitting for us to ask that question. Well, then, what really remains? What remains after affliction, as it were, stripped the man bare? Well, we've looked at that very question these past two meetings now. We've looked at verse 14 as the center of this psalm. And we've seen here that there is a recipient to this special thing that the psalmist has in view. What he returns here, the secret of the Lord. We thought of that last midweek. This morning we took up the subject of the message itself. The covenant or the secret that's revealed. And then this evening we take up that last piece, the manner in which this thing, this fundamental thing the psalmist has in view is revealed to his soul. And so as we do so, friend, I'd invite you to look back with me at the 14th verse, our principal text. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Now, as we look at the text, that first line tells us that there is a secret that the Lord possesses. The word in the original is not very surprising to us. It's translated in Job. Hast thou heard the secret of God? It's the same word in our text. But later on in Job, the translators rightfully move away from that idea and come into another. The same word is translated in this way. Job says, all my inward friends aboard me. In Psalm 64, the same word is used to describe secret counsel. The secret counsel of the wicked. In that particular passage. The idea behind the word is very simple. But in many ways. It doesn't necessarily align. One to one with our own word secret. The sense is is that. The Lord has. Intimate counsel. He pulls as it were. These ones who fear him close to himself. The sense in the original. Is just this. that The Lord here shares something in confidence. And even more more to the point. Etymologically the word actually has in view the idea of pulling somebody close and whispering in their ear. That's how the word would be used outside of the scripture texts. The secret of the Lord. Something that is only intimately revealed. Now friend as we think about that that leads us to the second line of our text doesn't it? It leads us to ask the question well what is the secret itself? Even though we've answered that question largely this morning. I want you to think about these two lines as the first giving us the manner in which this is revealed to souls, but then secondly, that second line gives us the matter, the substance that's revealed. But as you look at this text, as we understand that the secret of verse fourteen is the covenant itself, it does it does behoove us to ask the question how can the covenant of God in any sense be called a secret? To illustrate, let me point just to another psalm. Under the wicked God saith, What hast thou do to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? You see what the Lord is asking. You have no interest in the covenant. You yourselves do not belong to this community. You are not of my people. And so what business do you have taking up my covenant? Which presupposes they knew the covenant. They had some awareness of what the psalmist here in Psalm twenty five fourteen calls the secret of the Lord. Or take another text, speaking of those who sinned in the wilderness and died there. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. Their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. There the psalmist is talking about those who had some claim to be part of the covenant community, had some claim upon the covenant of God, but they themselves had no real and saving interest in that covenant. But they were nevertheless aware of the covenant itself. So how can we think of the covenant as a secret? And the answer to that question does take us back briefly to what we said this morning. The kind of knowledge, the kind of revelation that the psalmist has in view in verse 14 is not merely intellectual acquaintance with that covenant. It's not just that God is publishing by word the the content of the covenant itself. It's so much more than that. As we said before, the kind of showing that the psalmist has in view is that very kind of thing that the Lord tells Moses he himself will experience. When God brings judgment upon Egypt, God says, then I will show you my salvation, my deliverance. How is it then that Moses would have the way or the salvation of God revealed to him? By experience. By experience, he would know this. In other words, friend, this is not a bare, as our forebears would call it, historical faith. This is not merely an intellectual awareness of the covenant that the psalmist has in view. He has some real experience of this covenant, some real experience of the grace of God that is the substance of this covenant. And that's the sense, friend, in which we have to say, The hypocrite cannot know the covenant of the Lord. Oh yes, he can know much. Theologically, he can have an acumen that really is unmatched, even among seminarians. He can be among those who have some real experience of the covenant. But friend, without true and saving faith, he cannot know the covenant in this way. To him, that covenant is a secret that is not told to him. It is revealed only to those in this way, to those who fear him. And so we can paraphrase the text this way. The Lord reveals his secret to those who fear him. To them, the covenant is revealed in intimacy. The sense behind the word secret. As with inward or special friends. As shared in confidence. In love. As we look at the 14th verse then, it's important for me to tell you that this is a promissory text. In other words, the Lord here is giving us, through the penman, the inspired penman, a promise. He says here, the seeker of the Lord is with them that fear him. And he will show them his covenant. They will have some experience of this. But friend, I want you to understand that the whole point of this text, in fact, really one of the main points of the entire psalm is just this. That knowledge comes through that intimate communion that is described for us in the first line of verse 14. It comes to those who are the Lord's friends. Those who are in real and vital communion with him. And that's our theme this evening. That is just this, that covenant knowledge is conveyed through intimate communion with God. Covenant knowledge is conveyed through intimate communion with God. And as we look at this text, I want us to see, friend, first of all, that underlying this is a very basic principle that you and I know well. And that is that really, a relationship, any kind of relationship, is predicated on some kind of knowledge. And as we look at Psalm 25 briefly in its entirety, we'll see that very self-same thing. Here we find a man as he stands as one who fears God, one to whom this promise belongs in verse 14, we find that he knows things. He knows something about himself, he knows something about his God, and he knows something about that communion which he enjoys with God. And those really are our three headings this evening. And so we take up, first of all, his knowledge of self. His knowledge of self. How does the psalmist see himself? That's really, friend, a perennial question. As we come to this psalm time and again, as we sing it in worship, as we approach it in our own private devotion and family worship... That should be the question, shouldn't it? To whom is this revealed? Well, it's to the one who fears the Lord. But as Psalm 25 describes for us the one who fears the Lord, we need to ask ourselves the question, well, how does he see himself then? How does this one see himself? To whom the seeker of the Lord will be revealed. And first, as you look at the psalm, you'll notice that the psalmist describes himself in several places. Verses 8 and 9. In the 8th verse... Including himself, he describes himself as a sinner. In the next verse, as he meditates, he speaks then of the meek. Verses 2 and 21, he describes himself as one who trusts the Lord. In verse 14, implicitly, the psalmist describes himself as one who fears God. In other words, friend, what you have here is a man who reflects upon himself carefully. And here's the result of his careful reflection. He is a compound of sin and of grace he is at once a sinner and also one who is really meek one who really trusts and fears the Lord that's the reflection of the psalmist that's how he sees himself that's the knowledge that he has as one who stands in communion with God And, friend, the principle that we can derive from this is very basic isn't it that Christians are promised a spiritual acquaintance with themselves that too is part of our communion with God We will know ourselves spiritually, and by that I mean accurately. And so, friend, as you look at this, we're supposed to understand that this is an integral part of our communion. The psalmist, as he's writing under inspiration, sets before us this paradigm in which the man, even as he goes to God, reflects upon himself, and these are really his reflections. He is a compound of sin and a compound of grace. Now, take that first point. He describes himself as a sinner. A friend, as we've looked at this psalm, and as you recall our comments uh, over the midweek, remember that the psalmist, he's not flippant, and he's not superficial as he thinks about indwelling sin. He thinks, of course, about the duration of sin. He talks there, of course, about the reality that his sins and his faults of youth testify to a lifelong testimony of sin. A life filled with sin, really, from start to finish. That's its duration. Then he even comes to its magnitude. He describes in verse 11 the greatness of his sin. And then you have also the aggravation of that sin. We find here a man who has not only sinned as one in Adam, as one under the covenant of works, but we find a man who has sinned even against covenant love, covenant means, covenant grace. Now friend, as we look at this psalmist and we see that he's touched, By this reflection. We should know, as I've just said, he does not reflect upon his indwelling sin flippantly or superficially. This is something that really does grip his heart. And friend, as you read throughout the scriptures, this is simply part and parcel of basic and biblical piety. Take Jude. Christians are described there as those who hate the garment spotted by the flesh. They hate The garment spotted by the flesh. Or take the apostle's apostles example. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And as you come to the end of Romans 7, you find a man who it's very hard for us to read without thinking of clenched teeth. He's really pained and really burdened by the sense of this indwelling corruption. Yes, he's a man with hope. He turns to Christ. But as he reflects upon his sin, he's affected. And deeply so. And then, friend, of course, Christians are called to mortify their members. To kill sin. And, friend, that's really the idea behind mortifying. To kill it. Not to make a treaty with it. Not to draw a wide circumference around it. But really to kill it. To take out your dagger and to kill it dead. That's what the Apostle commands Christians to do. Which of necessity is. Flows from the heart. But even friend. As the Christian reflects upon these things. It's important to note. As I've just said. He sees himself as a sinner. Obviously. But he also sees himself as one. Who is by God's grace. Subdued to the Lord. He's not just a sinner. That's not the only thing that he sees here. He describes himself as one who is meek. And friend, the sense of that meekness is the very very thing that we sing and read in Psalm 131. When the psalmist describes himself as meek, here's what he's saying. He cries to the Lord, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor are mine eyes lofty. His pride, in other words, has been broken. That's how he sees himself. He sees that God, by His grace, has done a real work to cut out his pride. But it's even more than that, isn't it? You see here a man who can say, I delight in the law of God After the inward man. He's a man who longs for the Lord to teach him his ways. That is to really incline him toward obedience. He's a man in other words as he looks at himself. He certainly sees indwelling sin. But he also sees that work of grace that does subdue him. Cause him to be humble before the Lord. Cause him to be one who's numbered among those who trust and who fear the Lord. The psalmist sees both. And friend, as we look at this text. It's important to understand that all that we have here is the very thing that we just read from Romans 7. The Apostle says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. There's the operative grace of God. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. The point that the Apostle is making is the very self same thing. Very self same thing that you have in Psalm 25. He sees indwelling corruption. And he sees the inward operation of God's grace. And friend, all that we have here then is a picture of a man who, as Luther called him, he is simo ustes et peccatori, simultaneously justified and a sinner. Indwelling corruption is still within him, as the Apostle himself says. But yet he stands as one who is justified, a recipient of divine grace. And that grace really working within and so, friend, this shows us, doesn't it, that the, creature is, uh, the, the, the believer is unlike any other creature in the world. I mean, the unfallen angels do not have this inward principle of sin. They are entirely pure from its taint. Of course, those who are in hell, they have no inward principle of grace. Entirely divested of it. But the believer alone in Jesus Christ, as he is in this earth, is a compound man. And our psalmist recognizes that. He is simultaneously a man who has indwelling corruption and a man who also knows inward grace. And so, friend, this does lead us to a very basic application. And that is we are to avoid two errors. There are two errors or two temptations that the Christian easily falls into. Often the Christian will think that there is no sin or will make light of sin. A friend, the psalmist doesn't do that. He's a man who looks at sin and his heart is really moved as he sees it in himself. Just as the apostle does. Just as every believer you see in old and New Heavens do. They do not treat sin lightly. When they see sin in themselves, it grieves them. But on the second hand, friend, there's another error, another extreme that we must avoid. And that is to see only sin if there is any grace to be found within. You see, it's presumption either way. If there is a real inward principle of grace, friend, to say out of some kind of feigned humility that there is no grace is really to ascribe all that God is doing in your life to yourself. And that, friend, is just as presumptuous as to say that you have no sin in one sense. And so the psalmist here, as he's reflecting accurately, as he is re- reflecting as a spiritual man, he sees both principles, he sees them, he confesses them. Uh, friend, because he is a man who has given, who has been granted that spiritual knowledge, that kind of clarity. But secondly, and more briefly, we come to another kind of knowledge that the believer has. And that is the knowledge of God. When you come to verse 8, you have a very clear theological statement. It's rather direct even. Good and upright is the Lord. It's one of the most direct theological statements in all of the Psalter. Good and upright is the Lord. Now a word for me to remind you, friend, that we're looking at here a man who is under the crucible of affliction. He's within its furnace. And this is one of his responses. He reflects upon the goodness and the righteousness of God. But you see here, friend, as he does so, even though it might seem as though he's picking two attributes out of many, he really is taking the whole attributes of God, comprising them under these two principles. Both the moral and the natural attributes of God as the older theologians would describe it. Those are the things that the psalmist has in view. God's goodness and his righteousness. Now friend, our interest here is to look at this briefly as a believer sees these things. Those who are in hell. The, the demons who are now in hell will walk the earth. And those who are now in hell who, who are acquainted with something of God. Friend, they know, in some sense, the goodness and the righteousness of God. And they hate Him for it. The believer is of a different character altogether. When he reflects on these attributes of God, it's of an entirely different nature. And that's our aim this evening. Briefly to see how the believer looks at the goodness and righteousness of the Lord. And friend, as we look at the word goodness, first of all, we're supposed to understand that the psalmist sees here, in God... That He is the fount of all goodness. That's the idea. If there is anything good, it is only from Him. That's what James tells us very specifically. It is only from God that good gifts come. And the psalmist and all believers do the same. As they reflect upon God, they see that there is to be no good expected outside from God. None whatsoever. But the practical entailment for us, as believers, friend, is staggering. It's given to us in Hebrews 11 in so many ways. But I'll just point out to you one. When the the writer there goes to Moses, he writes this. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt. Not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Maybe it doesn't strike us at first brush. How this gets us back to the goodness of God. But friend allow me to point it to you very clearly. What the writer here is saying is. Moses left all of the good things. That Egypt had to offer. Every one of them. The The, the luxury. The lifestyle that he would have had in Pharaoh's house. He left it all. Things that even of themselves were not bad. He leaves them. And you you come to the question, don't you? Well, why did he leave? Why did he leave Egypt? Was it simply because he thought it, were, it would be better? Was he only thinking about perhaps just the life to come? Just thinking, well, it's better. To suffer now and to enjoy eternal bliss later? Is that the only thing that Moses had in mind? The striking is the writer of the Hebrews doesn't leave us with that question. Why really did he leave Egypt? Why was he really willing to suffer with the people of God? By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. As seeing him who is invisible. He saw the God who is altogether good. And he saw that to have this God as his exceeding great reward, as Genesis 15 puts it to Abraham. He saw that was far better than any kind of good the world might offer. This is the way, friend, the believer thinks of the goodness of God. This is the way the believer thinks about God as the fount of all good. There is no good apart from him. He is its very definition and its source. But secondly, friend, not only does he think of the goodness of God, he thinks of God as upright. He thinks of the righteousness of God. And throughout the scriptures we read of the beauty of holiness. Now, friend, as we think about this as those who are sinners, when we were to think about the righteousness of God, friend, that would not lead us to worship, it would lead us to tremble. Because, of course, as we think of a righteous God and we think of our own sin, we should tremble. But yet for the believer, as we see in Psalm 25, this is actually a cause for rejoicing. And not only is it a cause for rejoicing, it actually becomes a ground for his hope. And the question is, how is it that the believer can think about the righteousness of God, which once was the thing that terrified him, how can he think about these things and pull comfort from them? You see, friend, as we read throughout the scriptures, we read much about the believer reflecting on the beauties of holy his affections are moved toward the holiness, the righteousness of God. And why is that? Because he is a new creature. He really is inclined to good. He really is inclined to righteousness. And when he looks at God, he sees the epitome of all that he inclined to do. I mean, it gets far more fundamental than this. And I'm afraid our forebears have done so much better a job than ourselves at explaining why this is so fundamental. Jonathan Edwards wrote, put it this way. Love to God for his holiness is what is most fundamental and essential. Here it is that true love to God begins. All other holy love to divine things flows from thence. Thomas Shepard before him wrote, to the right closing with Christ's person, this is also required. To taste the bitterness of sin is the greatest evil. Else a man will never close with Christ. For his holiness in him and from him. As the greatest good. That which makes the Lord. Amiable. Is his holiness. In other words friend. What you have here is a man. Whose appetite is radically changed. And so as he looks at God. Friend as he looks at Christ. And he sees the white. Hot holiness. The blemishless righteousness. Friend. His heart goes out. His affections are warmed. These things that might have terrified him before. Are really the catalyst for his praise. Friend that's the believer as he reflects on the righteousness of God. These things allure him to God. And and even as Edwards put it. Is really the fundamental aspect of loving God. Of course the application for us is this true of us. Do we see God in this life? But as we close, we come to that third kind of knowledge. It's in this text. That is the knowledge of communion. A friend, as you look at this soul it's I, per, I think perhaps easy to miss, but it's important to see here that the man is not only persuaded that he knows himself. He's not only a man who also knows God as he is good and upright, but he even knows his position with God. Uh, allow me to illustrate take verse 11 pardon mine iniquity for that's his argument for it is great take verse 16 turn thee unto me and have mercy upon me for I am desolate and afflicted take verse 19 verses 18 and 19 rather look upon mine affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins consider mine enemies for they are many And they hate me with cruel hatred. I read all of those texts to you because they are all really arguments. These are all pleas that the psalmist is making with the Lord. And friend, what are all of those predicated upon? Even Even the least careful reading tells us that the psalmist has assumed that God loves him. That God is for him. I mean, friend, just look over those verses again. How ridiculous would those pleas be if God were actually his enemy? Consider mine enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Friend, if he was God's enemy, this would only be an expression of divine justice. Not at all possible argument with God for deliverance. Turn thee unto me and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The enemy of God ought to be desolate and afflicted. But the man here presumes that with God, his position is altogether different than that of his enemies. His relationship is something that he can even make a plea upon, even in this case. My friend, the reality is, is that even Christians too, as the psalmist is, are acquainted with their communion with the Lord. And this acquaintance, friend, is not merely abstract. This knowledge is not something that's purely ethereal. It's something that is deep. Something that is real. I'll put it to you as we close just in the words of John. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that he also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. For what is John's point? Just as surely as our hands have handled the word of life just as surely as our eyes have looked upon him so surely may you have fellowship with God. And friend, that squares nicely, doesn't it, with our psalmist. A man who cannot hold on to mere ideas, abstract thoughts. He needs something real because he's afflicted. He needs something that will really sustain him. Imaginary things will do him no good. He needs something substantial. And friend, the believer is no different. You see, friend, what is offered to believers, and this is the thing that is so staggering, isn't it? That they may also have not just an intellectual, but a sensible knowledge of this communion. Now, it's impossible for us to be out of communion with God. To be out of communion with God is to be no longer united to Christ. And so, of course, it's impossible then for us to be out of communion with God regardless of how people speak these days. But it is possible... For our sense of it. To wax and to wane. And oh friend. I've thought about this much. But as you think about our forebears. It brings us back to how we began. We speak about the sense of communion with God. In ways that our forebears would never dream. And here's what I mean by that. Friend if if some of our. If some of our our heroes in the faith, or to hear Reformed men talk about what godliness is, talk about what communion with God is, I really do believe at first, out of shock, they would laugh, and then they would weep. Because here is what we often hear. There is no difference between knowledge about God and knowing God Himself. There is no difference really between theological acumen and And actually knowing what it is to be reconciled to God. There's no real difference between intellectual knowledge and experiential. Friend, our psalmist doesn't know that kind of religion. Our psalmist doesn't know that kind of faith that is purely intellectual. He knows God, friend, by experience. He knows God really and truly. And as concretely as the Apostle John brings it to us. He walks closely with the Lord. And friend I think most of us would stagger when we would hear. Of how our forebears knew the Lord. Walked with him. Intimately. Walked with him carefully and closely in prayer. Under the light of the word of God. In corporate worship. It would stagger us I think. But friend this is precisely what the psalmist holds out to us. A real and experiential acquaintance. Of his communion with the Lord. So much so, that even under affliction, he can call upon and draw down upon him. And so, friend, I leave you just with this. The question that we have to ask is, how can a man like this be so bold as we have here in our text? Yes, we understand that he knows himself. We know that he knows his God and he has some knowledge of communion. But how do we really Well, how can we explain the boldness, the peremptoriness of his suits here? It comes to us in verses 20 and 21. The psalmist prays, let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Friend, if you desire greater intimacy and knowledge in your communion with the Lord, friend, that is your only plea. The psalmist knew these things and hoped to know them greater only because he was one who looked to Christ by faith. That is his argument. Let me not be ashamed for I put my trust in me. My friend, I remind you the 14th verse then is a promise. That knowledge, that intimacy that's in that text is promised to all who do look to Christ by faith. And the condition there is not the degree of faith. It is merely the faith itself. A mustard seed will do. And so friends seek it. Seek the very thing that you have in this text. Not a Christianity that is miles wide but inches in depth. But a real and a deeper knowledge of self. Of God. And of communion with him. As he offers it to us in Christ we'll close by taking up our Psalters once more and turning now to Psalm 25 Psalm 25 verses 8 to 14 as we've meditated on this already I won't read uh, nor make a comment on it other than to indicate an account that you and I, I know, are quite well aware. An account that you and I know well, rather. In 1685, of course, you have what was the zenith of persecution for the Covenanters. And as you go to Wigton, you'll find a stake out on the Solway Firth. And at that stake is commemorated the martyrdom of Margaret Wilson. An 18-year-old girl who was imprisoned and eventually executed by being drowned, because she held fast to the cause of Christ in Scotland. Well, the Solway Firth, even to this day to some extent, in high tide, it comes further inland. And so the thought was, for Margaret's martyrdom, she would be tied to a stake, a stake that was more inland, so that she could watch as another Margaret, Margaret McLaughlin, suffered before her. The hope was, of course, that Margaret Wilson would renounce as she saw the sufferings of, of 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 the former Margaret. But of course, the former Margaret dies, and Margaret the younger remains steadfast. As the water comes to her neck, as the whole town, her parents, her siblings included, watch. They hear these words. They hear, first of all, from the beginning to the end, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And then, our psalm. She sang from memory the words that we take up this evening, Psalm 25. My sins and faults of youth, do thou, O Lord, forget. After thy mercy, think on me, and for thy goodness great. With those that fear him is the secret of the Lord, the knowledge of his covenant he will to them afford. Friend, I put that out to you because here you have an example—the very thing that we've been meditating on this past week. Here you have a Christian in the furnace of affliction, the hottest crucible. And what is it that is really her metal? What is it that really is her constitution and substance? It is her clinging to this covenant. For renewed pardon. For grace to stand firm. Looking to the promise that the Lord God would preserve. Friend, we do the same, or we must do the same, as we take out this psalm this evening, through Christ looking only to the covenant and pleading only upon that basis for the Lord's mercy. This is all that we have, friend. And praise God, it's all that we need. To the praise of our God, we take up these words, Psalm 25, and we sing here the first version, verses 8 to 14. We stand to praise our God.